Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I am so happy and grateful to have Dr. Kara English here with us today, who currently serves as a Doctor of Behavioral Health in the Birthing Community of Phoenix and as the CEO of Cummings Graduate Institute for Behavioral Health Studies a nonprofit private university providing integrated behavioral health education and training online. Dr. Carol, welcome and thank you so very much for being here. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Oh, it's just, this is such a treat and I've had such a fun time chatting with you already. I feel like we're fast friends now and I'm excited to really dive in and hear your perspective on this. So you're in the Phoenix area. Yes. And you are just, I guess, why don't you go ahead and give us a quick overview of what your role is as a doctor of behavior health, who your patients are, so we can have that context first. Sure. So uh, for the past five years, I've been working exclusively with pregnant and postpartum women who are experiencing anxiety, depression, um, other mental health issues during pregnancy or in their first year after birth. Um, I have spent time working in collaboration with international board certified lactation consultants um, and also with certified nurse midwives in integrated practices. So that means I'm providing services within their medical settings. So my population for the past five years has been on mamas, both pregnant and brand new mamas, as well as their partners. And, um, you know, certainly during COVID, I've been focused on um, providing those services through telehealth to make sure that we're all staying safely um, within our social distanced and um, home environments so that services can continue despite the need for remaining safe at home. I imagine that, you know, going through childbirth is a very emotionally, it can be an emotionally tense, emotionally charged time. And I'm wondering for your patients as they're coming in and interacting with you, how, are you seeing them experiencing more emotionally, emotional challenges, stress, anxiety, because of what's happening with COVID? I, and I guess another way of asking this question is, what are they, what is their perception when they're coming in the door and talking to you or they're logging in and talking to you versus the reality that you're trying to ground them in Mm-hmm. and help them support them through their pregnancy? Sure. So um, prior to the pandemic, you know, some of the, what we call chief complaints or the, you know, the reasons for asking for help or for being referred to behavioral health care included marital conflict or, you know, um, pre-existing anxiety, anxiety and depression that were made worse by some of the hormonal influences. Um, unpredictable, you know, kinds of symptoms that they were having due to changes neurologically, changes physiologically, um, and certainly many women were being told that they needed to stop all mental health psychiatric medications, which is absolutely contrary to the evidence that we have available. And so I was seeing some women who were having um, withdrawal, ser- serotonin withdrawal effects. Um, from having uh, rapidly stopped medications on the med- on the um, recommendation of some of their providers who just weren't informed. So um, during the pandemic, one of you know the major factors that I started to see initially was an increase in anxiety and panic due to the mixed information, uh, mixed messaging about how to keep themselves safe, how to keep their families safe. 
uh, during pregnancy, you can imagine, you know, for my population, they're planning on birthing in a birth center. And if you choose to birth in a birth center, not a hospital, you are more likely to be a person who is following some of the science about having more choice around the practices that are used uh, during birth. So that could include, um, you know, not having an internal exam on a regular basis during your prenatal care, um, not being internally checked, uh, you know, vaginally throughout the process of labor and delivery, um, and, you know, just having that supportive, longer, 30-minute visit with a midwife rather than the quick five to six-minute visit with an OB or a nurse practitioner during prenatal care. Well, all of that changed significantly during the pandemic because for many women who were used to bringing their partners with them to prenatal care to make sure their partners were also informed, they can no longer bring their partners, they can't bring their kids to the prenatal care appointments. So they're looking for, you know, prenatal care is regular throughout your pregnancy. So that's, you know, roughly 40 weeks of care that you have to start finding childcare for that you never had to do before or that your partner can no longer come to get the education and information that is provided by midwives um, or to be or by behavioral health supports. And then in addition to that, um, initially women were told that they were not allowed to have a birthing partner with them, that they themselves had to birth alone. And that created all kinds of trauma. That created all kinds of um, new conditions that we had never seen before because these were women who um, had purposefully and intentionally created a birth team, which was evidence-based, you know, based on all of the evidence that we know supports a healthy birth. Um, having supportive people who are really there for you and there to support you and are going to do the things that you have asked them to do because those are supportive things. You don't have those people anymore. Wow. So birthing women lost their team. And to birth alone in a hospital is something that hasn't been done, realistically speaking, since the 70s. You know, a woman alone with a medical team. Um, you know, we recognized early on in, in the 80s that, you know, it was critical for a, a woman to have a partner. And so there you began to see a lot of the, you know, partners coming with birthing people to the hospital. So in a birth center, what you would see is that there would be at least one birth partner, then a doula, um, or another labor support individual. And, and at the birth center, many women do choose to hire a doula. And that was not allowed anymore. Doulas were banned from hospitals and they were not allowed to um, come with women anymore. So these hired labor support individuals who have specific training and education about how to help advocate for a woman, how to help her have the best labor and delivery outcomes possible are no longer allowed. So you can imagine wow. women that have, you know, followed all of the evidence and support and recommendations from some of the best practices online no longer have those tools available to them. So again, the experience of anxiety and panic and trauma was increasing. I, I don't, I can't, I can't even put a number on it, um, but that's what we were seeing. Um, and then a couple of months into the trauma, I started to really see that depression because after a while we all got very, very weary and hopeless and we started to feel very helpless. And so it was really a changing kind of behavioral health need, both on the part of the birthing woman and then on the part of the medical professional, because we were all going through the same thing that our patients are going through. And, you know, to a certain extent, we only have so much 
energy available to pour into those that we care for um, when our own resources are really low. Um, And so as medical professionals, we get into this line of work to meet a need that we have identified as lacking. And so with Certified Nurse Midwives, there is so much passion for being able to help, help women have better birth outcomes, to reduce the level of maternal mortality, to reduce the amount of intrusion by medical professionals during a woman's prenatal and birthing experience. And you know we're really trying to meet that need, but then we're trying to meet our own level of increasing stress and the need to constantly self-regulate. And additionally, our patients are coming in And with each and every interaction, we're seeing this increase in our own level of stress and feelings of helplessness and hopelessness because we can't control the environment and we can't control hospital policies. We can't control what we have to do to try to save ourselves from a pandemic. So it really really has been um, pushing us all really, um, you know, from our patients and families to us as care providers and as communities really to our limits. Um, and we've had to, we've had, you know, if we're going to survive, we have to come up with some really creative and thoughtful and intentional solutions to do that. So I feel like that's, you know, really what the pandemic has given us in terms of, of a gift, if we will accept it and look at it as an opportunity, you know, to learn from all of this is, you know, how can we do what we know how to do better? How can we, you know, read the science and the evidence and, and put it to the best use in the name of, accomplishing our mission and vision at the get-go. So long-winded question, or excuse me, long-winded answer, um, but as a DBH, I have to have the ability to think medically, not behavioral health. Um, And, you know, from a medical perspective, what are quick assessments that get to the root of the issue so that we can work on root level causes with specific strategies that can be practiced as homework in between visits so that people are able to, just like practicing piano, you don't just go to the lesson every week or every two weeks, you go to your lesson and then you practice something every day before your next lesson. So it's the same with behavioral health interventions in the medical setting. We look at specific homework activities that can give our patients empowerment and hope from day one. And then something that they have to arm themselves, to shield themselves from the stressors of their lives on a day-to-day basis until they see us again. And then I have to be able to think innovatively, creatively, financially, operationally about the environment, about solving problems, not just from a clinical perspective, but from a whole person and whole organization approach. So those are some of the things that we learn as doctors of behavioral health that are above and beyond what many other behavioral health providers learn um, in their educational settings. One of the things, thank you so much for sharing that. And one of the things I'm hearing is, it sounds like you're dealing with a population specifically who puts this really high level value on community and connection through the Absolutely. working process. And so much so that, and I'm really curious to, if we have time to pick your brain on this too, because I've I've seen more studies coming to light in the last five years or so talking about the environment for the mom, the family, and how that affects the baby in as the baby's growing. Mm-hmm. So what I'm then also going to make the assumption, and please correct me if this is way off, mm-hmm. is you have women who are putting this extremely high value 
on community and connection through the birthing process, and also going above and beyond to intentionally foster a more loving, supporting environment for their child to grow into a human being in. Mm -hmm. And they've planned and practiced and placed their whole life into this piece. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden that's yanked away from them. And to take away, not only is it yanked away, but it goes to the complete other extreme where it's not only are we going to take away the things that you're valuing most, this community connection piece, you're going to be a void of all of it. And you may not even be able to have your partner, your spouse, your significant other in there with you, let alone the support team you thought. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Well, and you know, as you're, as you're kind of reviewing um, I also want to say that most women, so one of the things that I work on with, you know, any of the women that I work with during their pregnancy is, is creating a postpartum support plan. So it's not just about having that, you know, um, low intervention, high community based and connected and loving and nurturing birth. It's about having that nurturing environment for the mother after she goes home um, with a new baby. So it's setting up you know, resources from meal trains to having mother, sister, best friend, um, you know, women who have been through birth themselves and can understand what a mom's needs are in the postpartum period. It is helping the husband or partner to understand what those needs are and helping to focus on her supporting and nurturing her as well as supporting and nurturing baby. It's setting up resources, tools, and supports to support the partner because the partner cannot be everything. The partner also has needs. Um, we all need to get sleep. We all have nutritional needs. We all have physical activity needs. We all have social needs. And that was really shut down. Um, I had, you know, just one of the women that I was working with who I had worked with since her previous child had a surprise pregnancy and was facing birthing during a pandemic, um, was facing not being able to have her mother and mother-in-law come over and help with her older children. Um, you know, the, the individuals who were lined up to do a meal train suddenly could not deliver food because it was considered at that time unsafe wow. for you know, someone else to prepare food and bring it to your home. And it still is um, considered unsafe, you know, in different places. And so it really just, blew up the whole plan. Um, and we had to get really creative. We had to, you know, one of the things that I like to focus on with everyone that I work on is you are strong, you are intelligent, and you are resourceful. Let's put our brains together and let's say, okay, if we can't do X, Y, and Z, yes, we can grieve that loss because it is a loss and we need to Absolutely. acknowledge that it is grief. It is a grief response that we're having. But what can we do? because we can acknowledge our feelings, we can allow them to you know, be experienced without judgment, but we've also got to move to action because it is the ability to be creative and resourceful and solve big problems and do hard things and then actually do them that helps us to recover and get back on track in a lot of ways. So yeah, I think the biggest thing that I personally have learned personally and professionally is that resilience really comes from being able to say, I may not have control over the environment, but I have control over the input. So how much media, social media and media am I consuming? You know, um, who are the people, who are the influencers that I allow, not only in my life, but in my headspace? Um, you know, how much information is 
where's the line to too much information? Yeah. Have I consulted too many internet sources? Because that just leads to a lot of confusion and mixed messages. I'm curious, if you don't mind just on that, yeah. I'm curious, like how much do you find that you're having to, and you're having to almost spend time now with your patients in that myth busting place? Because yeah. I'm, I'm wondering now, because there is so much and because there is this 24 seven news cycle and so much of it is sensationalized or propagated. And then, and those are the ones that we're, we're accrediting, right? And then we have all these other subsources of it too, that I was sharing with you before we got on, I was scrolling through my Facebook feed the other day and I pushed down on my phone a little too hard, which clicked on a link that somebody had posted. And it was a link to a political blog that was very, I don't remember if it was very far left or right leaning, but what ended up happening with that is through the Facebook log logarithm and their targeting, I went back and no sooner had I clicked off and I wasn't on this page more than one and a half seconds. Mm -hmm. The, I would say four out of the next 10 posts I saw were stuff related to that. Mm -hmm. And it continued like that for the next several days until I started reporting all those things as spam and hate yeah. speech. And it was, it was coming at me from both sides. And so oh, yeah. I remember somebody saying the other day, like, how do people get into these you know, far off or extreme views or anything like that. And I saw it right there because it was within five minutes. And so if I wasn't aware of how this whole digital engine was going, I would say, oh my gosh, like this is a thing. Look at how many people are talking about it because yeah. here's my sources coming at me and look how many these people, oh, I know this person. I really respect them and they're talking about this. Mm -hmm. So, and they seem pretty smart. So it must be true. So I'm wondering for you, how many of your conversations now are actually going through and sitting with people, if any, doing some of this myth, myth busting or demystifying and trying to get them back to a concrete center of, yeah. hey, here, here's what we know and here's what you can control? Um, so as I, we were kind of chatting prior to um, the recording session, but a lot of the patients that I've been working with during the pandemic are people that I was working with prior to the pandemic. Um, either pregnant or postpartum, and many of them already had some pretty strong skills for noticing when an input, whether it's media, social media, or something a person says, a comment, is triggering. So we spend a lot of time working on just noticing the response that we have, thinking, feeling, and behaving. So, you know, when something was coming in from a social media source or other that was, you know, causing them to increase anxiety, to increase panic, to increase that level of uncertainty that usually tips people into the anxiety and panic space. Because if we don't know how to resolve something or if we feel that we can't control it, that feels really scary. That fuels a lot of fear. Mm. And so I don't specifically address myth busting but what I do is I work on, okay, let's talk a little bit about how you're feeling when these kinds of inputs come in. And what, at what point can you recognize that this is no longer good for me and take action to turn off social media or put the phone down or you know, to distract your head from rumination and fear to do something actively that you know is good for you. So we create a list of actions. So it could be physical activity, take a walk around the block. It could be do five minutes of yoga. It could be use the call map to do a meditation. It could be, if you're right, right before going to bed, it could be use a sleep story on the calm mm -hmm. app. 
um, so that you can, you know, re basically change your neurology so that you can turn off the rumination and turn on a supportive strategy that helps you feel better. So it's that taking action that is identified with, I've identified the way that I'm feeling without judgment in a mindful way. And I can connect it to the trigger that is too much social media, or I've been scrolling too long. It's time for me to put the phone down and do something different. It might be, I go, you know, snuggle with my kids for five minutes. It might be, I go and give my partner a hug and a kiss and just tell them how much I appreciate them and just say, please just hug me, hold me and tell me everything is going to be okay. Even if you don't mm. feel like it will be yeah, just let, yeah. let's do that for a minute. Yeah. Um, you know, and so we really try to focus on that rather than because I'm not going to argue with a person who feels very, very, you know, differently about something and, and really concretely black and white this is. Okay, but how much of that is helpful to you? How much of it is hurtful to you? And do you enjoy the feeling that you're mm -hmm. in right now? And if not, if it's uncomfortable, you can do something about it. So take sovereignty of your mental health. I love that. I want to talk to you about self-care. Mm -hmm. For people who are in the space of, of caring for others, who are support systems for people out there, how, how important is self-care for us? And is it something that should we be developing a routine, a system around it? And if so, what does that begin to look like? Okay. Um, great question. And I think in general, self-care is the prevention that we were never taught to do. Most of us were never taught. So we were told that in order to prevent cavities, we should brush, brush and floss one to two times a day, maybe even after meals to prevent cavities. So what's the self-care when it comes to mental health? We also know that we shouldn't eat too many donuts and fried food if we don't want to get cardiovascular disease, right? Um, or obesity, you know, the, these kinds of things are just really, we learn from an early age. We have physical activity in school, PE in school to teach us how to be physically active, um, but they're starting to cut that out now um, because the focus is more on up here. So as that happens, we get further and further away from being a whole person and that is really bad for us. And we're seeing the rise of mental health disorders across the globe because of this, we're not creating our own foods. We're not, you know, baking and cooking and preparing foods that we grew or that we prepared or that we have a connection with. Um, and so all of these are things that we can actually reverse ourselves, taking sovereignty back, like mental health as well as physical health. So to think about a self-care practice, it's the little things. People usually think about self-care as, oh, I'll do a spa day. That's actually a really poor choice for self-care in the, in the um, context of it needs to be something you can do like brushing and flossing every day, like little doses of self-care, mm. like brushing and flossing, uh, even a couple times a day that actually lead to a more satisfied and peaceful mind, a satisfied and peaceful body. And so the routine of it is critical, but I don't think that we've really talked about self-care in terms of a routine to the degree that we have with brushing and flossing 
and, you know, eating healthy, even though we can go a lot further in that yeah. direction. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the idea, right. So the idea is something that I discuss with every single person that I meet with in the birth center. We actually have um, an acronym. It's called Snowball. And I created these little cards. They look like bookmarks. And I just say, put this on your refrigerator. If you're having a hard day, let's review this acronym on your refrigerator and ask what are a couple of, you know, tiny one to two minute things that I could do today to help resource myself in that self-care routine. So snowball stands for sleep, nutrition, omega-3s, walking, breaks, adult time, liquids, and laughter. And so I can send you this if you'd like yeah, to post please, later, awesome. but, but the idea is that, you know, we're looking at your whole health. You are a whole person from mind, body, spirit. And we want to look at some of the ways that you can increase self-care in any of those different, you know, categories or even as a whole to help yourself feel more resourced on a daily basis. And so, you know, I'm not pregnant and I'm certainly, I'm 15 years, you know, postpartum. Um, but I still use the idea of snowball. If I'm having a rough day or a rough moment or a rough weekend, I'll, I'll go, okay, let's kind of work through the acronym. How did I sleep last night? Mm, not so great. Okay, I need to rest more today. I need to get more sleep tonight. So that means I need to get to bed a little bit earlier. I need to use a sleep story. If I'm having a hard time falling asleep, I need to keep the TV off tonight. Um, you know, I want to keep the lights really low. I want to make sure that, you know, by nine o'clock lights are off in my area so that I can fall asleep peacefully and try to sleep through the night. Um, you know, tomorrow morning, I will plan to wake up and have a healthy breakfast. You know, I'll try to have a healthy dinner tonight, those kinds of things. So it doesn't seem that revolutionary, but keeping your eye to having those kinds of self-care strategies, including what are my thoughts right now? What's the tone of my thoughts right now? Is it really accusatory? Is it really guilty? Is it shameful? Am I mad at myself because I ate a hamburger last night for dinner and I haven't worked out in two months? And if so, how can I turn that tone to a, okay, you know, you're maybe not where you'd like to be as far as physical activity and nutrition. What can I do to begin to build healthier habits? It, it goes such a long way from stopping to shame and judge yourself to creating a success plan of, you know, positivity and self-support and self-love. And if we can cultivate that in ourselves, it changes the family dramatically because we pass that on to everybody we live with. Kara, this has been so incredible. And I feel like we haven't begun to scratch the surface of all I want to ask you is I have about a thousand other questions, <laughs> but I know you have a patient right after this. So in interest of time, before I ask my final question, where can people connect with you, find you online? Sure. So um, our university website is cgi.edu. And then my uh, email address is cenglish at cgi.edu. I don't do Twitter. I don't do Facebook. Um, but I do have a Facebook page for the business that I created. It's called Terra's Place. So it's Terra's, T-E-R-R-A-S, Place, P-L-A-C-E-A-Z.com. And I have a ton 
of resources that are related to self-care, that are related to a healthy pregnancy and a healthy postpartum, that are related to helping dads and partners identify what they're going through um, as well, and that generally relate to you know, how to be supportive as a community. So I think that those resources could be really helpful for pretty much anybody. Absolutely, thank you. You're welcome. Carrie, you, you mentioned it briefly, and I was hoping we might just finish on this. There's opportunities to learn from this, to grow as individuals, as a society, as a community, as a country, as a global community. And I'm curious, what has been the most surprising or unexpected for you lesson that you've learned through this whole pandemic time? And how will you apply it personally, professionally, both going forward, whenever we go back to when COVID goes away and we're left with life as we life, life resumes in whatever way it resumes beyond COVID. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, in terms of surprise, I would say, you know, when people began to be forced to stay in their home spaces a lot more, there was an initial sense of joy and peace of being able to spend more time in an environment that they generally were leaving for most of the day, all five days and maybe more of the week, um, we started to see a, a really huge increase in people buying um, plants. And so um, people began to you know, keep things that they could care for in their homes and that helped them feel more at peace, more joy. And, you know, people who have been doing that are reporting that their stress has been a lot lower since they began to, you know, look at things that they could do. People are starting to bake. People are starting to learn to cook. Um, you know, people are starting to learn to grow a garden, um, you know, starting from little seedlings um, and then to transport those into their yard and to learn, you know, different tools that agriculturists and farmers have known forever. Um, people are starting to keep their own animals. You know, this was something that was, you know, really a trend that was growing um, prior to the pandemic that really increased during the pandemic because people started to realize that they needed to be able to rely on themselves um, for their own food supply. So I think some of that is really helpful because, as I said before, it's part of self-care to work with nature, to work with animals, um, to care for something, to invest your love, to invest your time. Um, it, it feels like self-care and self-love um, to create and cultivate that kind of a practice. So I really hope that spending more time at home, spending more time with loved ones and family um, that live in your home continues. However, I also see the need for um, being able to return to socializing with family and with friends because many, many people, especially people who live alone during the pandemic, um, we need people, we need other people in our lives. Yeah. There, you know, that evidence, I mean, we see that loneliness prior to the pandemic, loneliness was being called the new epidemic globally. And so if that's the case, boy, what, what does a pandemic do to that? Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think that's something that we need to continue to work on, um, as a global society and, and certainly as national society. And I would love to see us maintain the highlight of how important mental health is. Um, we are definitely starting to see the inclusion of behavioral health providers finally, even in the state of Arizona, which has been 
lagging in terms of integration. So we are starting to see the actual inclusion of behavioral health providers in medical settings really for the first time. And I've been studying integrated care since 2011. Wow. So we're behind, um, wow. but we're really starting to see that now. And I really hope that that continues. I think, you know, that's one thing that most of the providers I've worked with have recognized the need to have a really well-qualified behavioral health provider in their setting. And so that's, that's somewhere where I see my training as a DBH really become critically important because the operational and financial changes that a practice needs to be able to manage and navigate, they aren't natural to providers. And many providers are both the clinician and the operations and financial managers, and they need help. It's not possible for one person to do that alone. So we, as behavioral health providers, need to have some of that expertise to really join in practice, truly from a partnership perspective. So I think those kinds of learnings and, and those kinds of, of um, new information, you know, coming out are, are going to be important. And I would just say finally that one other thing that I would also say is that we've identified as a society that drinking seems to be a really relied upon coping skill for stress. So one of the uh, recent statistics was that the Amazon of liquor, which is Drizzly, reported a 300% rise in sales. And Wink, a wine club, saw a 578% increase in new member signups. Um, and so the rate of using drinking as a coping or as the only coping mechanism for added stress, I think pretty much everybody at this point is recognizing is really, really bad for us, not only in weight gain, which has been a big issue, but in people telling me, I think I may have a problem with alcohol. And these are people who are, you know, definitely functional. So you would call it functional alcoholism, you know, but, you know, and I myself have said, oh my goodness, I, I suddenly I went from having a glass of wine to having nearly a bottle of wine by myself. And, you know, I'm just sitting here hanging out at home with my husband. What's going on? Well, it's that stress and it's adding that as a coping mechanism. So again, how can we look to self-care and health and taking that sovereignty back of our physical and mental health? And how can we just make that our norm as a society rather than relying on media and on drinking, you know, to <laughs> just feel a lot worse? Everyone, boys, this one you're gonna wanna rewatch and re-listen. Dr. Kara took us on a fascinating journey today. One of the things that continues to amaze me through this whole handful of hope series is when I talk to folks like Dr. Kara who are in these working in these different niches and facets of life, learning about what that journey, what that experience has been like of going through with women who are trying to arrange their pregnancy in a certain way around community and connection. It's just a reminder that all of us are going through this time and we're experiencing it in our unique ways. And I think it's an invitation. There's a word that kept popping up in my mind as, as Kara was sharing today and it's compassion. It's, it's, we really, truly do not have an idea of what's going on with other people and what their experience has been like. And I was just, I was so flabbergasted hearing her share because through this whole time, I never even considered what this population of women who were going through and trying to have this really specific, unique and special experience for the birthing process of going extra intentional forming community connection and then have that stripped away, what that would be look like for them. I was only considering maybe what the traditional birth was that I would understand of going to the hospital, 
doing that kind of thing. And I think, again, it just it really speaks to that compassion piece, because if we even if we just look at what she was saying as a model of how so many of us have, somebody who's going in, you know, who's getting a midlife, who has a doula, who's having these birthing things, who, who's purposefully doing it because they get 30 minutes with their person instead of five. You hear connection, 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 community, 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 and imagine having that taken away. And so many of our friends and family have felt that in spades in so many ways. And so maybe there's an invitation from this for all of us to how can you reach out and connect a little bit more with respect to your own self-care boundaries, which I loved how she defined self-care of it was the prescription that we are never taught. Gosh, that's going to stick with me forever. And looking at the snowball approach to self-care and how important it is for us to really slow down and do those types of things but to distinguish it not as a spa day. And I think that's such an important distinction because so many of us, we think that self-care, we can't do it because it's gonna cost us hours or a whole day of our time and massive amounts of money and that it is about going to a spa, but not at all. It's the one to two minute strategical flossing type things. Mm -hmm. It's looking at those micro changes that you can do daily that make up the massive difference over time. And it's how can you floss? You know, what is flossing for yourself look like? And yeah, and I love that. Yeah, right. And that whole spectrum of the human of not just your mental, emotional, physical well-being, how to add to it. Uh, I, I just absolutely love that that distinction of it's not the spa day; it's the one to two minute pieces right. for yourself. And to bring it full circle about what we've learned, I think all of us have learned something from this. And part of where we're going to probably have our biggest growing in our learnings is to do what Dr. Kara was talking about, is to take inventory on if something is serving us or hindering us. You know, consume your content, consume your media, do what you need to do to feel informed. But if it gets to the point where you are noticing it's a diminishing rate of return mm -hmm. and it's leaving you feeling in a way that is a not feeling that you want to necessarily be existing in, Give yourself permission to turn it off, step away from it, and then really engage in the things that are going to uplift you, help you feel better. Because there's such an opportunity to learn and grow and consider what you can do to grow and evolve as a human, as a, as a community, in connection with others. And recognize that things like alcohol are not necessarily going to solve problems. They are going to maybe put a band-aid on something but if you notice it yourself starting to do those things that you recognize may not be in the best interest for yourself, take the step away from that and get back to that snowball piece and figure out what you can do for you that takes just one to two minutes to take care of you. Mm -hmm. Dr. Kara, this has been such a treat. Thank you so very much for sharing this time with us. I, I Absolutely. Know, Thanks again. Yeah. And this has been a joy. And gosh, I, like I said, I feel like we barely began to scratch the surface. So we'll have to do a round two again at some point. That sounds two. great. I'd be happy to do round two. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll let you get to your patient and everybody. We will see you next time on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to